Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Good evening, and welcome to today's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Kerry Curtis, your host for this evening's program. Uh, our speaker this evening is Gary Hirschberg in conversation with Joel McCower. I'm going to introduce jo Joel and have him introduce Gary. Uh, Joel is currently executive editor of GreenBiz.com, and he has a variety of other uh, involvements, uh, which are too numerous to mention. <laughs> Uh, Gary graduated from, or excuse me, Joel graduated from Cal uh, about 10 years after I did uh, in, in, uh, back in the uh, 60s, I guess. And he's been a... 70s. He's a 70s. 70s. Please. 70s. That's right. I graduated in the 60s. It's a decade among exactly. friends. Uh, and so he's, he's an entrepreneur, writer, strategist on sustainable business, clean technology, and green marketing. For more than 20 years, he has been a respected voice on these subjects through books, websites, blogs, articles, and speeches. His work is focused on three principal topics, how companies of all sizes and sectors are integrating environmental thinking into their operations in a way that produces business value, the creation of new companies and markets for clean energy, clean water, and advanced materials, and the strategies and tactics companies use to communicate and market their environmental efforts and leadership, especially to consumers. And I, I have it on good authority that today is, is Gary's birthday. So welcome, Joel's, Joel, Joel's birthday. I'm turning Joel into Gary. He's much, it's, much older. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's Joel's birthday. You graduated in the 80s, right? Yeah. yeah. Not my finest evening so far. Please welcome Joel McCower. Thank you, Carrie. Good evening. And thank, thanks, Carrie, for not just the, introduc just the introduction, uh, whatever you call me, but, uh, but, but also for the great work that you're doing in organizing the, the environmental forums uh, at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, uh, dozens and dozens a year. I know it's a, it's a great effort, and you do it for the love of it, not for the dollars, because there aren't any. So thank you for, for doing that and for making this evening possible. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to, to be able to introduce Gary Hirschberg. Um, Gary is, a, by virtue of title, he's the chairman, co-founder, and president, uh, and, and CE, and his business card says CE hyphen yo, as in uh, of, of Stonyfield Farm. Uh, a company that uh, he uh, really began 25 years ago. It started off as a seven-cow organic farm and grew into a $260 million a year business that's the leading organic uh, yogurt company uh, on the planet. Um, I, I first met Gary about 10 years after he started that um, um, in, uh, in the early 90s when I was uh, writing a book on, on corporate social responsibility and had the great pleasure of, of visiting uh, Gary in, in his Londonderry, uh, New Hampshire headquarters and, and was, uh, was, as I still remain impressed with uh, what, not just the, what, what he's done with the business, not just how he has, has managed to grow this business with, with, uh, and, and do it with great integrity and respect uh, in the business world and the environmental world and the, the whole, uh, I think, progressive world, but also be an inspiration for so many uh, other entrepreneurs, uh, business people, 
and, and small businesses such as uh, or, uh, organic farmers that he's uh, mentored and, and nurtured and, and helped to bring, or farmers who became organic farmers, uh, and to, to bring into the fold. So uh, a few factoids, uh, Gary's a New Hampshire native, um, one of the first graduates of Hampshire College. Um, and uh, prior to starting Stony, Stonyfield Farm, we'll get a little bit more into the story with Gary. Uh, he directed a, a rural education center, um, it, which is a small organic farming school from which Stonyfield was spawned, and then was executive director of something that uh, some of you uh, who, are, who graduated in the 60s and 70s may remember called the New Alchemy Institute, which is a research and education center focusing on organic farming, aquaculture, and renewable energy. Um, and uh, more recently, uh, Gary is the author of this book, uh, Stirring It Up, uh, How to Make Money and Save the World, uh, which is uh, a really uh, inspiring book on uh, his story, but also, uh, I think, observations on the, on the larger world of, of growing a business uh, with progressive values, trying to, to marry the, you know, the, the environmental, social, and economic goals, and, and, and how he did that so well. So Gary is, uh, is a true leader in, in the sustainability movement, one of its founders and, and guiding lights, and uh, so I'm very pleased, uh, and I'd like you to join me in welcoming my friend and one of my heroes to the Commonwealth Club, Gary Hirschberg. Thank you. So, Gary, let's let's talk a little bit about how we got how you got to this. I mean, talk about how Stonyfield Farm. You were you were basically a uh, solar guy or a renewable energy guy. How did you become a dairy farmer? In effect. Mm. Well, uh, I was running this ecological research institute that you mentioned, the New Alchemy Institute, and we were in a room that was maybe twice the size of this one, namely uh, around 2,000 square feet. We were feeding 10 families three meals a day, 365 days a year, using no fossil fuels, 100% solar-powered, wind-generated electricity, uh, completely organically, no pesticides, herbicides, or chemical fertilizers. Ronald Reagan had just come into power and had slashed funding for everything that we were depending on, renewable energy, organics, etc. And about the same time, I went to visit my mother, who was the senior buyer at the Epcot Center in Florida, where Kraft Foods had funded this thing called the Land Pavilion, where they were showing how food would be grown in the future. And you can imagine their view of how food would be grown in the future was slightly different from mine. It was sort of a <laughs> monument to everything that's wrong in big agriculture. It was heated with fossil fuels in central Florida. It used sort of rivers of fossil fuels running past these, these plants with the fertilizers and so on. And they and actually had, I remember, because I went, I visited, they had these, uh, these crops that were sort of hanging in midair. And, they were, yeah. th- and that was the idea that we could grow crops anywhere and everywhere. Exactly, with uh, you know, better living through chemistry and so on. And... Uh, but, you know, it was sort of perpetuating this mythology of waste and this mythology of away, which doesn't exist, we now know. Um, but the horrifying thing for me was that for the 25,000 people who are visiting my institute every year, that's how many people were paying to go there every day. And when I came through this exhibit, I, I said to my mom, I said, Mom, I've got to become craft. This is the only way I can have the power to reach with my vision this number of people that they're reaching. And just the fun part of that story is we, we did launch Stonyfield. We... We had this organic farming school. My partner had um, a, a wonderful yogurt recipe, and we would eat yogurt at every trustee meeting while we were trying to solve this problem created by the Reagan revolution. And one of us, we know, don't know who, said, let's just start selling the yogurt. Um, the fun part of this story is that 14 years later, uh, we actually passed Kraft in yogurt sales. And now I think we're six times their size. Yeah, it's a very nice... Uh, yeah. And actually, the better part of the story 
Uh, Joel knows my sister, who uh, I was giving this speech uh, to our 450 employees at Christmas time, and she presented me with a package of American sliced cheese, uh, craft sliced cheese singles, organic. So the punchline of this is if you stick around long enough, anything can happen. Yeah. Uh, but also, I didn't have to become craft. They've apparently become me, which is very nice. That's great. Yeah. Well, more power to them. I, 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 love, the, I love the idea that you're, you know, what are we, we going to make? What are we going to make? And the answer is literally right under your nose there. Uh, so, so when you started, did you know, did you have this vision for this, uh, for a business that was going to, you know, be environmentally and socially progressive, and, and that that was going to be woven into the fabric. Is, did you get that right from the get-go? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, first of all, true confession. I had grown up as the son and grandson of shoe manufacturers, so in my childhood, I saw the river catch on fire. And you know, last time I checked, they're not supposed to burn. And I had run when I went off to college as far from business as I could possibly go. I thought business was the source of all things bad, as many of us child, children of the 60s uh, thought. And uh, I studied climate change in college. And, and frankly, what I studied back then is now common knowledge today. But we've really lost 35 years. We knew, we knew what we know today then. Um, so we really did set out uh, with this, uh, essentially this nonprofit mission, trying to create a for-profit enterprise, with the singular question, is it possible to create enterprise that can be part of the solution, not part of the problem? I, mean, I, th- I think the simple view that I've evolved and, and certainly captured in the book, and now 25 years later, it's, it's a certainty in my mind, is that business is what got us into this mess, and it's going to take business to get us out of it. So had, this was 1983. I mean, mm. that was this was not the conventional thinking. I mean, it barely is now, but it certainly wasn't 25 years ago. No, the way I describe it is that we, we had a wonderful business. We just said no supply and no demand. <laughs> um, I mean, organics back then, let's face it, there are people here who will know what I'm talking about when I say it used to mean that you have to chew extra. Uh, you know, we were all sort of growing this food with our values and with our brains and you know, in between protesting nuclear power and so forth, but none of us were sort of focused on the fact that it was actually food. But fortunately, somewhere in the middle of this, uh, first of all, my partner's yogurt recipe was incredible. Uh, On the height of the Iranian hostage crisis, an Iranian-American woman refugee came to us and said, this yogurt is the best yogurt I've had since the old country. You should definitely call it a taste of Iran. That, that, that was a piece of marketing advice yeah. we didn't take, but, um, you know, taste of Khomeini. Uh, but, uh, but we, um, it was a, uh, you know, I think the organic industry has come of age because most of us started to realize it's about food first. But it's also about marketing, as, and, and while you didn't go that route, I think you, you know, this must have, I, I know that it, it was part of how you were talking about the company early on, but also that you saw early on that, that in order to grow a, a non-traditional company, you're going to have to use non-traditional means. Well, yeah, and in fact, my goal was not even to create a non-traditional company. It was to beg this question of why, you know, in basic economics, you learn about these things called externalities, right? The stuff that isn't on your income statement or your balance sheet, and therefore it's not real in commerce. Uh, childhood obesity, epidemic rates of cancer, diabetes, and, of course, climate change are externalities that no one's accountable for. My, the river that caught on fire was not my family's responsibility, but, in fact, it was. And 
the question I was asking is, you know, I mean, back then in 1972 when I was studying this stuff and over the next decade, the limits to growth study had come out, the Meadows study, and said what we now know to be true, which is that if humans continued our trajectory of economic development, population growth, resource consumption, and so forth, we would be peaking all productivity by the middle of the 21st century and then precipitously crashing with the only line that would continue to go up would be pollution. Of course, methane and CO2 are pollutants. And so we were really asking that the question, is it possible to create commerce uh, that uh, can take us out of this, I don't call it a dead end, I call it a cul-de-sac. Uh, you know, for, for example, people say to me, well, Gary, you know, organics isn't proven, but I would say it's the chemicals that aren't proven. You know, we've been on about an 80-year experiment, and we, what do we know? We know we have epidemic rates of cancers, we're treating them better, but they're all growing. We know that we're toxifying our, our land, our air, our water. We have hypoxias. Off the, uh, one is off the mouth of uh, the Mississippi, uh, a giant zone the size of Rhode Island growing 20% annually with no plankton, no algae, no fish, no birds, no nothing. It's a, it's a result of excessive use of uh, chemical fertilizers and no attempt on our agribusiness to stop soils from eroding. So we've exported a third of the topsoils that were here when the pioneers went across. And, and you know, these externalities have come home. So the, the, the central question we asked back then was, can we internalize the externalities? And as you point out, it turns out to have been a very um, profitable question to ask because we've grown. In fact, I should correct your introduction. We're actually at 325 million now, but that was last year when we were two. Well, you need to change your website then. I guess so. Uh, it's hard to keep up. But we've, but, but we've had a, 18 straight years of over 24% annual growth oh. uh, in an industry that's grown 3 or 4%. So it's, it's clearly working. So, so I want to get to the marketing side because I know that you've basically done this without advertising mm. and through some really uh, quirky, I think, or you know, appropriately quirky kinds of, of marketing techniques. First of all, why no advertising? Well... That's a great place to start because I think if we're going to talk in broad philosophic terms about getting internalizing the externalities, we have to look at our consumer behavior, at the whole capitalistic approach. And I call it the Coke and Pepsi uh, model. We all know the way consumer products are organized is that you, Coke and Pepsi, their mission is to make their product as cheap as you possibly can. And by the way, this is true of all large consumer products. And there's nothing cheaper than sugar water and corn syrup solids. And then what they do is they have an enormous margin that's left. And with that margin, they blast you with advertising, us with advertising. So we, hopefully they create awareness, which should lead to trial, repeat trial, purchase, repeat purchase. You know, it's all this business school stuff. And eventually you hope to get loyalty. Um, when you are in the organic business, your mission is actually to put cost into the product, not take it out. You want to uh, pay farmers a floor price to keep them going. That really was our mission, to stop. I mean, farmers, family farmers are basically an endangered species in our country. You want to put added nutrition in. You want to, you really, by bringing the externalities in to create a more durable, healthier product that's better for the planet, you actually build cost. So you wind up with a gross margin that's really small, I can tell you, mine is 10 points behind what Dannon and Yo plays is. But, so the reason for no advertising is we can't afford it. Um, now, in fact, what we've proven and what I talk about in the book is that our net margins, after all that, are actually better than theirs. 
because by doing the kinds of things that you've talked about, the quirky stuff, I mean, well, what happens is necessity is the, you know, um, the mother of invention, as we know. Uh, so just as an example, I, which is where I think you're leading me, um, you know, when we were first starting, we had this proposition with very costly product, um, very tough. Uh, we couldn't charge, the, pass those costs on to the consumer. We would have died on the vine. Um, so we had no money for marketing, but we did have cows. So what we did was we put cows up for adoption, and we said if you send in five yogurt tops, you can adopt a cow. You can get a certificate. Um, you can get a photo of your cow. You get a certificate naming you the co-owner of your cow, and then twice a year, in those days, the cows would send you letters. And <laughs> moose the letters, letters. Would, moose letters. Right? Moose letters. Yeah, all right. the moose that's fit to print. Don't get me going on cow puns. <laughs> he knows better. Yeah. Uh, He'll milk it all night. But, yeah. but oh, God. <laughs> Um, that's pure bull. But, but, uh, but the cows would talk about why synthetic growth hormones are a bad thing or why organics is a good thing. And nowadays they're, they're carbon neutral cows because they now do only email. There's no paper exchange. Um, the, other, the other great example of this, uh, which I know Joel knows, is uh, when we were trying to break into the Chicago market, uh, there were two major supermarket chains there, and they told us we had to get to a 3.5 market share in 90 days if we were going to remain on the shelf. Now, by conventional means, the Coke-Pepsi model, that would cost me $10 million in advertising, which we didn't have. Um, but I knew that um, uh, commuters riding the trains in Chicago were actually my heroes because when you take the train instead of driving cars, you're avoiding the production of 45 pounds of particulate per con commuter. So I called the Chicago Transit Authority and said, can we thank commuters for riding the trains by giving them a cup of yogurt. They, they said, excuse me, say that again. They'd never allowed food on their, tarm on their platforms ever. And so we ended up um, feeding 85,000 commuters. In 72 hours, we got to a 3.1 market share in Chicago. Uh, the Today Show came down and filmed the crazy yogurt people giving out spoons and cups. And, and uh, anyhow, I mean, it, was, it, it cost $100,000 versus the $10 million. And so then when we were trying to break into Texas, where, of course, they don't believe in trains, we um, uh, came up with this little-known stat that Joel knows, which is that if America kept our tires properly inflated, we could get a 2 MPG increase in, in national fuel efficiency standards. So we went down to Bush's Texas with these big signs that said, we support inflation, and stood on the side of the road, and people would pull over, and we'd fill, inflate their tires, give them a tire gauge with a Stonyfield logo and a coupon and a yogurt and a spoon and again we grew our share so what, what, what ended up you know Winston Churchill says success is the ability to move from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm <laughs> and, and we basically did a lot of trial and error and, but figured out that this whole idea of marketing things that people care about treating the consumer intelligently talking about real stuff not just you know having you know celebrities wiggle on the TV or something, it, it really works. You want to write down, uh, mention that Winston Churchill, because I think half the room is writing it down, so just so that make sure they get it uh, correct. Success is the ability to move from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> That's great. So, so one of the other marketing things that I think is interesting is that, and this is, again, sort of sacrilege in, in, in food marketing in particular, is that you use your precious real estate of your yogurt lids mm to talk about things that weren't even your pr product. They talk yeah. about causes, to talk pr promote lots of different things. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, the primary point 
of media to reach anybody, whether you're a retailer or consumer product, is, is that the point of sale? I mean, that's where people see it. And so, yeah, my lids talk about causes we care about. Um, this week I had, a, it's not always successful, by the way. We had an interesting episode this last week. Nancy Pelosi successfully got healthy food onto Capitol Hill for the first time ever. And uh, Stonyfield Yogurt was there. And the first thing that happened, since it's pretty widely known that I'm supporting Obama, um, we're having a good day, by the way, um, is, um, is uh, a bunch of Republican uh, aides started blogging that this money, this was a stealth effort to raise money on Capitol Hill for Obama. You know, I think I make one thousandth of a penny per yogurt cup, so if they bought a thousand cups, I could give a penny to Obama. But, but the, when we got through that fracas, my very first lid um, happened to be talking about campaign finance reform. <laughs> and, and, the, and the lid actually is complaining about the fact that you have to be a millionaire to run for cro- Congress, and it says on the lid, uh, in politics, the cream doesn't always rise to the top. So... <laughs> It was a bad start, let me tell you. I just got a big credit memo back to me saying, you know, no good political. But, but aside from a handful of folks on Capitol Hill, it's, it's powerful to talk about causes that people care about. You know, people... Uh, the idea that employees or consumers kind of check their values at the, at the, in the parking lot before they go into work or you know, into shop is, is crazy. And, and in fact, the reciprocal is true that I think most of us want to do the right thing. I mean, how many of you want the yogurt with extra pesticides? Raise your hand, you know? <laughs> and, and so... I saw a couple of hands. And there. so by, um, by uh, you know, encouraging us all to realize the, the, our, our inherent power of one to change the world through our conscious consumption... Um, this is a part of the kind of the, the handshake with the consumer that we've built. And, and I told you earlier about the Coke and Pepsi thing with the loyalty. The, the, the interesting thing is um, we get to loyalty without doing all that other stuff because what, what creates loyalty is an emotional connection. Obviously, delicious yogurt is number one and all the healthy things we stand for, but the causes as well. I, and i just tell you a quick anecdote. I was in Florida a year and a half ago, I was holding actually a competitor's cup up to read a, an ingredient that I didn't know about, couldn't pronounce. <laughs> I won't tell you who the competitor is. I might. We'll see how this goes. Um, and this little old lady came up to me and tugged me on the elbow and said, son, someone your age really should be eating the stony field, which was, which was kind of like seeing God. You know, it was, it was like a religious experience. So I said, thank you, Mom. No, I, I'm joking. So I said, you know, thanks, and why? Why? And she went on to start telling me, well, do you know they give 10% of their profits to environmental causes, and they, 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 they made their facility carbon neutral? And I mean, it was incredible. And this was a consumer who, you know, I, I finally introduced myself. And, she and said, hired oh. her, I hope. And, and, and cloned her, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and she, and she uh, no, she said... Uh, you know, the girls and I, her bridge club, only eat Stonyfield because you have this, this culture that's good. And we started reading your labels and your lids, and we went to your website. And, you know, that is a much more powerful currency than, than purchased media. So at what point did you sort of get a sense that this was going to work? Last week. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, that. you know, l- let's be really candid and honest here. There's some entrepreneurs in the room. Uh, we were nine years before we made a profit. I mean, we made enormous amounts of mistakes. Um, my wife refers to it as the bad old days. And uh, I, I, I was really raising money my first nine years. I, said any, I always used to say anyone with a tie was fair game. Um, 
but we we broke through and and part of it was the organic business uh, i mean whole foods was actually not whole foods at that time it was a bunch of little bread and circus here and a little store there and you know the industry was coming of age and this conversation as you point out was not really yet real most people thought organic just meant you know something to do with chemistry and the last time they touched the word organic was in a, a bad memory from a class long ago and so you know we were building an industry building a proposition but i would say in the mid 90s we hit around 30 million dollars in sales and um you know frankly um started to have the bigger problem which we have to this day which is supply more than demand yeah i was i was actually going to talk about that uh that at one point i know a couple of years ago nancy nancy uh gary's sister is the vice president for environmental environmental management. natural resources, natural resources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. uh and um and she was basically full-time trying to source organic milk you bet and um you know you ended up as I recall, importing from Australia? No, we, we explored it. We New, explored Zealand. New Zealand. Yeah, it's an interesting story, especially at this moment, uh, especially since I'm in Michael Pollan's backyard, and I'll be seeing Michael tomorrow uh, to have our annual debate about local. You know, I always ask audiences, do you, which is more important, local or organic? And, of course, it's a rhetorical question, because clearly, if you can eat both, <laughs> local and organic, then you should. But as I quick to point out to audiences, you know, we Northerners have discovered the banana and, uh, and coffee, tea, sugar, <laughs> citrus, and so forth. And although climate change may solve the problem, um, you know, we do need to export this, import this stuff. Um, this anecdote that Joel is talking about is pretty interesting because as a green company, or at least a company attempting to be green, there was no, we, we, we did, we ran out of organic milk in the U.S., demand outstrips supply. And we started looking all over the world, and we found a surplus of organic milk in New Zealand. And so then I looked at my sister and said, how can we possibly bring milk from halfway around the world and still call ourselves a green company? And we, ran what, we did what we always do. We ran a climate model. We have a climate mapping program that we use. We can actually tell you the carbon footprint of every cup of yogurt that goes to every retailer in America. Uh, mm-hmm. And to my utter shock, we discovered that we could get organic milk powder from New Zealand to New Hampshire at 55% of the climate footprint of bringing fluid milk from Wisconsin to New Hampshire. And you could say, well, how is that possible? Well, the, the biggest part of the climate footprint of milk is grain, and it's 100% grass-fed cows in New Zealand, as, by the way, it is in Ireland, as it is in parts of America, but not all parts. And so you get rid of the grain, and you dramatic. I mean, it's the feed, the the, the fuel, the 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 forage, the, gr- the the milling, the shipping, the transporting. And by the way, the cows on grain produce more gas. Yes, it's a tough subject, but they do when they're eating grain because they were biologically not created to eat grain. They're created to eat grass. The other factors were every single farm in this area is organic, which means a, a driver picking up, picks up organic, 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 organic. It's short g- gaps between. They have large dairy processing within a group of 30 or 40 farms. So there's almost no carbon footprint or very low carbon footprint in the pickup. Whereas here in the States, you know, you have a farmer here and one there, one there. Then it's converted to powder. It's put on boats. I mean, the point is it's a far more efficient system than fluid. Now, we ended up not buying that milk and, and didn't have to do it because we solved the problem in some other ways. But it was just instructive to me that we, as we, if we're sincere and serious about 
reversing climate change, and we must be, then we need to not make, not only not make the perfect the en- enemy of the good, but we also need to be fact-based and not just make these simple assumptions. You know, a full, I can ship yogurt to New York City five hours away with a smaller climate footprint than to Burlington, Vermont, two hours away because the trucks going to New York are full. And so the, the, the fossil fuels consumed in shipping are spread over more cups. When I go to Burlington, I send two pallets, and it's, it's very inefficient climate-wise. So the whole food miles thing is, uh, leaves a lot to be desired. Well, it, it's, I mean, I think it's, an, it's, it's the same as our use of the lids. It's important to have this dialogue. It's important to create conscious consumption and to ask the question. And by the way, consumers asking these questions are exactly why Walmart and some of the you know, companies that we might not think of as environmental heroes are in fact becoming heroes. Uh, Walmart is, not, is now the biggest buyer of uh, organic uh, produce in the world. And, you know, while that's uh, obviously good and bad news on a, on a lot of levels, um, you know, the reality is, is that that's, you know, organic is a 17, thanks to Whole Foods and other pioneers, organics is a, is a $17.5 billion industry. That's the good news. The bad news is it's 2.5% of all food consumed in the U.S., which means, frankly, 25 years later, we're a rounding error. And, you know, the goal here, because of the ecologic impacts, the climate impacts, the Save the Family Farms impact, the hypoxias, and on and on and on, um, is to get that other 97.5%. And that means there's no bad folks out there. We've got to engage. So that brings us to to Group Danone. Mm. Um, I don't remember what year that... uh, 2001. 2001, uh, Group Danone, which we know, the French conglomerate that we know in this country as as the maker of Danone, and Evian. And Evian, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, bought uh, a, a, an interest that I think grew over time to where it's now 80-some percent, roughly 80 percent of, of, of your company. So you are now part of, of this, uh, I don't know how many billion dollar... We think, I think it's around $20 billion. $20 billion dollar, mm-hmm. uh, French food conglomerate. Um, what did that do for you in terms of both trying to... Uh, well, uh, first of all, let's talk about the transaction because I know that you have been critical. You know, over the over the years, as you know very well, uh, so many of the companies from from Toms of Maine to Odwalla and Ben and Jerry's and Aveda and everybody else have, have been bought by big companies. And in some cases, those were all companies started by people you know like you, passionate, uh, values-driven entrepreneurs. And in, a, and in those transactions, a lot of them didn't that that passion and those values did not survive. Um, how did you, what did you do to, to try and ensure that that was not going to be the case with Danone? Yeah, we call it encoding the mission into our DNA. Uh, well, what Joel's referring to is that um, many of my friends and peers and colleagues uh, who started wonderful businesses and product lines that you all know, Silk, Ben & Jerry's, uh, uh, Odwalla, are no longer running those companies. And in fact, in many cases... Um, not necessarily those, but uh, the, you know the values that went in at the beginning are, are not there anymore, or at least aren't apparent. And um, what happened in our case is I had, uh, by the time uh, 1998 came around, I had uh, 297 shareholders. You know, many of them were family and friends and people who had been for us from the very, very get-go. Um, and we had a moral obligation to get them an exit. But by witnessing Ben and Jerry's uh, process, I knew I didn't want to take the company public because effectively that's a sale and the end of control. Uh, ben describes uh, his deal when his company was um, 
uh, being uh, uh, hostily taken over, uh, he said... He by, dis- by Unilever. In, in the end, it was Unilever, but yeah. actually uh, Dreyers had made the first hostile approach. Uh, he describes himself as sitting in a room with 19 lawyers. He was paying for all of them, and none of them represented him. Hmm. And I didn't want that fate. Um, so we um, didn't want to go public, but I did want to get my shareholders an exit. So we, in the end, to make a very long story quite short, because it took about two and a half years, I asked this basic question, which is really the central question in my book, which I think we all have to ask every day, all the time, which is, why not? And the question I asked is, why not sell, let them into my company, but let them make, have them keep me in control? And in the end, the deal that we did, they, we did sell them in several phases over time, 80% of the company. They bought out all the non-employee shareholders, but left me with 60% control. And you might say that's completely anti-capitalistic, and I suppose it is, but I just executed another deal on a board of a company, Honest Tea, that I sit on last week. We just did the exact same thing. Sold it to Coca-Cola. And, uh, 40%, 40% to Coke. And let me just say that you know the heart of this is so, so, something happened to me when I turned 50. I just got kind of grumpy and impatient. You know, 35 years of preaching the moral imperative for saving the planet, and as you may have noticed, I haven't succeeded yet. Um, and I realized that you know business, the premise we started with at the beginning of this conversation, business got us into this mess, and business is going to have to get us out. The problem is we can criticize Coke and Pepsi all day long and grow our own enterprises, and certainly you know we're all proud. I'm a proud stockholder in Whole Foods and, 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 and many other wonderful companies, but the truth is we've got to convert the bigs and the bads uh, quickly. The, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us we've got 10 years to adjust the trajectory of CO2 emissions to create any kind of possible future for my kids. And that means we've got to change the way Danone and Kellogg and Nestle and you know, everybody else out there works. And, and here's the happy news. is With Danone, um, we have been involved for six years. We've now launched organic enterprises in Ireland, England, France, Canada. In Bangladesh, we've created a yogurt with Muhammad Yunus that is selling for one penny per cup uh, to the poorest people in the world, providing nutrition and health. I'm on the board of that with him. Uh, we're working in South Africa and Germany and now China. You know, these folks have incredible reach. I'm now the head of sustainability for Danan for this hemisphere, working on uh, bringing our climate mapping, our organic uh, purchasing, our, our li- using our lids, our, our, our climate reductions, uh, and uh, this is really, you know, basically a Trojan horse thing. We've, we've, we've invaded, and now we're going to sort of like a virus, you know. Affect the mothership. Exactly. Yeah. But, 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 but honestly, um, you know, not to mix metaphors here, but this is, and not to overly sell here uh, my friend Barack Obama, but we need a different dialogue in society and in politics. The appeal of Obama to me is that he doesn't take special interest money, because special interest runs Washington. And, and he also appeals across party lines, because partisanship is blue versus red. I mean, that's not us. We're one country. And, and in business, you know what? We're all polluters. My name is Gary, and I'm a polluter, okay? Hello, Gary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hello, Joel. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, we got into this mess over a thousand years. You know, we're, we're, we're not an... We're, we're a practical species. We saw some stuff that could burn, and we burned it, and we made heat and energy. And, okay, some smoke went to this place called Away. Fine. 
But, you know, we weren't seeing those costs. But now we know that they're here. And now we've got to move quickly. We've got to reverse evolution, and in a fast way. Because we're now talking about things that have to happen in decades. We don't have a thousand years to correct this ship. And so invading, or at least working with, cooperating with the largest companies on Earth are, to me, the shortest way of ensuring some kind of prospect for my kids. Mm -hmm. So so I'm I'm actually very proud of the deal, as you might be able to tell. We're getting a lot of questions, and and some of them are having to do with... with with organic, the, the organic issue, and uh, they uh, they vary, but I think I think uh, in terms of their tone, but I think people, I think the good question here is, what has happened to the organic standard now that Walmart and, and Safeway and and everybody else, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to you and and Whole Foods and a number of others, organic is now mainstream. Uh, what's happening to the standards, and and how is that affecting you? Sure, well. First of all, you can't name a major food company that doesn't have something organic now. Kraft is but one. And if you think they've all come there because of a sudden like burst of moral uh, correctness, uh, trust me, they've gone there because that's where the market is going, and they don't want to be left out. Um, and they're going there is a good thing because that will drive down the costs of... of uh, it'll make it more available. Um, at the same time, as I just said earlier, the key objective of organic is to save family farms, is to keep people in agriculture. And so the vigilance uh, that we need to maintain to maintain the standards uh, is, is at an all-time high and will only grow. You know, I think the organic industry may be the only industry I know that has fought for more government regulation. And the reason we do that is because the word natural means nothing. You know, there's ice cream on the shelves out there that, doesn't, that don't change shape when they melt that still say <laughs> natural on them, okay? And uh, so organic means something. Organic means fair trade. Organic means fair pricing to farmers. Organic means uh, a third-party audit trail uh, that you have to verify not just the production but your facility, your processing, and so on. And um, for sure, the bigs getting in here uh, requires that we'd be uh, incredibly vigilant. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, three years ago, there was an episode that really was a wake-up call. Um, You know, we fought for 12 years to turn the organic rules into a law and finally got that passed. And then shortly after, a large poultry producer in the South who was trying to produce organic chicken to compete um, discovered that organic feed was rising to like 50, 60, 70% over conventional. And so they got this congressman, actually, you won't believe this, it's true, you can't make this up, his, the congressman's name is Deal, Nathan Deal, and that's exactly what they did. Late one night, they made one, and they had him put a rider on, under Denny ha- on Denny Hastert's watch, a rider that said if organic feed rose over 50% over a premium, over conventional, they could, they could use conventional feed and still call it organic. Mm-hmm. And it happened that an aide on Capitol Hill called me uh, early that morning and mentioned that this thing was going through on appropriations. We uh, rallied together. My friend Walter here from Whole Foods was on it, and we got uh, uh, a number of congresspeople, some really interesting bedfellows, by the way. Pat Leahy was the first call, Tom Harkin, but also Orrin Hatch, who turns out to be a big friend of organics. They quickly put together an organic lobby on Capitol Hill, and one week later we defeated that rider. And now that organic lobby is actually intact, and now through the organic trade association we have an annual lobbying day we're, we're on capitol hill so 
So the good news is the organic standards are incredibly meaningful. The other thing we have to realize is they, they were never perfect to start with. You know, there's a big debate about access to pasture. Now, Stonyfield only buys with Organic Valley from family farms. But there are other competing organic dairies who say that animals don't have to have access to pasture. That's their interpretation of the rules. So there's an ongoing and healthy debate, and frankly, consumers are the ones keeping everybody honest. Has, uh, the fact that this has grown so much, is that helping or hindering entrepreneurs who want to be in the organics business? Well, I think the help is that you don't need the dollars. I mean, many of us have proven, uh, although, again, it took us nine years to become profitable, many of us have proven that you don't have to have the big bucks for advertising that everybody tells you. Uh, Also, increasingly, there's more and more space being dedicated, so there are more opportunities. Um, The reason I'm not so troubled by the Walmarts and the Safeways doing organic is um, because, I mean, well, you're here in Northern California. Walk into a Whole Foods and look at the percentage of organic products and then walk into a Safeway. I mean, I sell far more items at Whole Foods than I do at a Safeway. They, They have space for organic and they have private label organic, which is actually, I think, a good thing, although my employees hate it when I say that. Um, but, uh, but, you know, they're not going to offer enormous amounts of space. It's going to be a slow sort of iterative uh, process. But nevertheless, it's another outlet. It's a place, you know, my view is wherever food is, uh, it should be organic. All, you know, all of humanity ate organic food until the mid-1930s. And we've just been on this weird 80-year sort of free ride, not counting the externalities and not looking at what if, but we now know what if. So, so we need to work our way back in, but, but make no doubt about it. We have to be, uh, we have to be incredibly vigilant on the standards. Um, so how about the lo- some of the larger issues of, of farming around uh, food safety and animal welfare? Do you see the organic movement starting to, to provide some higher levels of confidence or, or just raising the standards, I guess, in those things as well? Well, you know, this, uh, the animal, uh, the whole issue with animal husbandry, animal welfare is uh, central to the organic standards. I mean, um, and this is why our interpretation of access to pasture means access to pasture all the time, every day, year round. There, like I said, there are some who believe that it means access to pasture while they're heifers, and then once they're at milking age, put them in the barn and that's it. Um, so they've sent, you know, spent a portion of their lives outside. And um, I'm not going to fool around here. This is a vigorous debate in our industry, and it's an emotional debate, but it's an important debate. And again, I want to stress to you, you know, the power of the consumer. Uh, I, I mean, Michael Pollan, I, I joke about Michael and the whole local thing, but he's obviously a hero of mine, ca- causing us, helping us all to understand that we, we truly are what we eat. And our planet is a reflection of how we eat. Uh, but the key here is that consumers have got to vote. You know, the late Anita Roddick said it best. She said, anyone who thinks they're too small to make a difference has never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> and and we, are all, we all need to be mosquitoes. We need to buzz and we need to poke and we need to... And, and, and when you fill out comment cards at, 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 or emails... You know, I'll tell you a funny, an interesting story. I was on, I'm on this book tour and I was talking to a major retailer recently who said to me off, offline, he, he said, you know, if we get 10,000 letters of praise, um, it goes into consumer relations and 
a thank you goes out and people are acknowledged. If we get 100 letters of complaint, it makes it to the executive level. Um, you know, don't fool yourselves. We all think that we're like the victims of whatever corporate America wants to produce. It's there. Corporate America spends billions to figure out what we want and then tests it 10,000 times before it ever appears. Color, flavor, size, cost, etc. And, and, and our power to vote is, is immense. We are actually on top of the pyramid here. Um, and so when it comes to animal welfare standards or other standards that are important to us, it's important to uh, fill out those comment cards. It's important to drop an email to say, this is what's important to me. Gary, we have a, a lot of questions and not a lot of time, so I want to try and maybe get into a little bit of a lightning round here with uh, okay. some of these things. But uh, somebody asked that now that you're, uh, that you're grumpy and impatient and, and, uh, and, and, and at the same time you have this great big $20 billion company behind you, have you reconsidered or would you reconsider thinking about advertising and, and maybe a way to leverage that using your values uh, as a way to, to reach even more people? Sure. Yeah. I mean, to, no question. I mean, I'm, out, I'm in the big leagues now. I'm up against big companies who want to crush me. We're number three yogurt brand in America, 7.3 market share. They want my share. So we are starting to play with advertising. There are, are, we did run a TV ad. Some of you may have seen it because we tested it here which had a farmer um, out planting a beaker of red dye number 40 in the field. And the commentator says at Stonyfield Farm, uh, you know, um, we would never use red dye number 40. And then the farmer, like, tries to whack it with his shovel, and it bursts into flames, and he runs off screaming. And, and then I come on and say, you know, at Stonyfield Farm, we'd never use this stuff. And the other one has a picture of a farmer injecting a cow with synthetic growth hormone, and then he turns around and reaches down and grabs a bucket of feed, and he turns around, and the cow is towering over him, and he's sort of dangling on the rope from the cow. And So, I mean, yes, we will do advertising, but we'll do it our way. A lot of people, well, you do everything your way, I think. It's no question there. Um, I think there's a number of questions that, that all into the, fall into the category of what have you learned, and, 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 and also, was there at any point where you just were going to give up? I think there's, you know, we've got, uh, it's clear in this room, a number of entrepreneurs who are, uh, as every entrepreneur goes through, you know, you get to that, you just hit bottom, sometimes yeah. for a long time, and sometimes you can blow through it. Did you hit bottom and just going to give up? Oh, uh, how many hours do we have to talk <laughs> here? I mean, I, the short answer, and I know it will sound self-serving, is read the book. I mean, I had near-death experiences around the clock. I had more near-death experiences than near-life experiences for the first bunch of years. Um, we, we, one year, we did uh, $1.4 million of sales and lost $1.7 million. It's a long story, and I won't bore you with the details, but that works out to be about $40,000 a week. Uh, and I had to come up with it. My, my, my bedroom was next to the office, which was next to the barn, which was next to the yogurt works, and I used to tiptoe out of bed thinking my wife was asleep over to the office to call my mother-in-law to see if we could borrow you know, $3,000 for payroll, and Meg would be on the other line saying, Mom, don't do it. Um, we always thought of giving up, but I'll tell you an interesting thing here, Joel, uh, and for the entrepreneurs. Um, one of the little secrets I learned is that, uh, and it's what, the reason venture capitalists like this, is, is um, that angel money you first get from family and friends has a way of keeping your attention. When you've borrowed money from mom and mom-in-law, even worse, um, you stay kind of focused. You know, the thought of losing family money is a 
big, powerful motivator. And believe me, if some random venture capitalist had put money in, I would have probably walked many times. But I just want to say quickly to your first half of your question, what have I learned is what I really capture in the book. Um, And this is only more so today than it was in our 25 years, though I didn't know it until hindsight in writing the book. And that is that sustainability pays. I mean, the book is called How to Make Money and Save the World because we have done a, a hundred, maybe a thousand things to reduce our climate footprint, and every one of them has had a payback far better than not. Um, we built a waste treatment plant. Instead of following the mythology that the solution to pollution is dilution, you know, then you send your sludge to a place called Away, we built a waste treatment plant that produces energy for us. It's a biogas digester. Uh, that I discovered in China in the late 1970s. And, and instead of producing a truckload of sludge a week, we maybe produce one every four years. We're not even sure because we've only had the thing for two years. So the book talks not just about Stonyfield, but Whole Foods and plenty of other companies who've proven that this is how we're going to work our way out of this, that this is especially at $100 a barrel oil. You know, do you know that oil was $32 a barrel when Bush came into office? Now, I'm not hanging that on Bush, although we could, I suppose. Uh, but but it's, that's seven years ago. So what's it going to be in five years? You, you know it's going to be $150. And, and then all of a sudden, everything changes. The chairs you're sitting on will not be economical at $150 a barrel. Our logistics, our supply chain, by the way, conventional agriculture will not be affordable at $150 a barrel of oil. So what I've learned in, and is that this stuff is actually, you know, uh, George Bernard Shaw said, virtue is insufficient temptation. The, the, this is not about virtue. This is about economic survival and, in fact, prosperity. Along those same, same lines, is there another business that you would consider starting outside of the food and organics industry that, that would incorporate your values and, and what you've learned? Would you consider that? Well, in the book, I mean, yes. Uh, the answer, I, I sit on the board of a lot of different companies, not in my space. Um, and as you know, I started a chain of organic and natural fast food restaurants. Called which O-Naturals. Is, yeah, O-Naturals, which shows you that I'm truly a pathological <coughs> optimist. Uh, the fast food business is not for the meek, let me assure you. Um, but, uh, you know, in the book, I talk about carpet companies and clothing companies and retailers and electronics firms. And I, in the book tour that I've been doing for the last month, I've engaged oftentimes in panels with businesses of service businesses, law firms, large industrial giants, and I've never found a business where I can't, within a half an hour with them, figure out eight or ten green steps that will save them money on real time. And you know this, Joel. I mean, you, 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 you promote this all the time. But it, this story is getting easier to tell. Uh, you know, in New Hampshire right now, we have, I guess they're calling it stagflation, but it looks like a recession to me. And, you know, the building trade is dead. And I had breakfast with our governor last week and said, you know, give tax credits to energy conservation. We could restart the entire, super insulate all the homes in New Hampshire. The technology is at the point now where you can get one-third of your heat from body heat uh, in, a, in a super insulated home. And we could we could triple up uh, tripling the, layer, the, 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 the walls of my coolers at Stonyfield had a payback of nine months. Any banker will loan against that. At, at what point do you, would you feel like you've succeeded? And what, what does success look like for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess if I keep eating organic yogurt, I'll be around long enough to find out, huh? That's the um, plan. That's a good plan. Um, 
You know, that's a really, really tough question, and I'm not sure I have the answer. I, I mean, I have three little yogurt eaters at home, and I think most of us... Uh, uh, I hope you have lots of yogurt eaters in your yeah. homes. Uh, I mean, I think most of us um, know that we've kind of left these kids with a bad deal. It's not our fault. You know, we were just doing what was logical with our sort of, as uh, Kurt Vonnegut calls it, big brains. You know, we just have this problem, which is that we see the world in linear terms. And, you know, success is not going to be a linear process. It's going to be a cyclic process where the waste from one system is going to be the food for another, where we mimic nature's complexity. And we'll know it when we see it. And uh, we got to get there. And we got to get there fast. And the good news is, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at GE, DuPont, uh, you know, some of the biggest companies out there. I mean, the green energy business grew to $71 billion of new investment uh, in 07. So, you know, the markets are flowing in these directions. We've just got to kind of speed it up. Let me try that question again. Mm -hmm. I tried to dodge it. Yeah, well, it ain't going to happen tonight. Mm. At what point do you, Gary, feel like you all have succeeded? Well, uh, I hope none of my employees are listening because they hate it when I say this, but an organic Yoplay would be a good start. You know, if you're listening, Yoplay, let me say something about this, you know. (laughs) They have all these lids. They talk about breast cancer, right? And credit where it's due, I give credit in the book. Uh, by the way, they stole the lid idea from us. That's what their ex. That's what many of my, their ex people tell me. But credit where it's due. They've raised millions of dollars for breast cancer awareness. And you know, I don't know about you, but I know ten women dealing with breast cancer, including my own wife. Um, but if they really want to stop breast cancer, they'll go organic. Uh, that's the way it's going to happen. You know, it's not about. You know, we have to be careful of these... As I said earlier, we need to be careful that we don't make the perfect enemy of the good, but we also have to watch what I call our talk-do ratios. You know, it's not enough to just talk about green and doing this green philanthropic stuff. We've got to change our practices. We've got to encode our genetics. So I think seeing a really huge food company go 100% organic would be a good start. Are you going to ask it again? No. No. <laughs> Tempting, but no. Um, I, I, I think that you know one of the things that, that that characterizes a lot of the entrepreneurs that I admire is that they're never satisfied, and, and I think, uh, and I think that's the most successful people that would that would. But I think it's also is that you know there's always something that keeps us up at night. By the way, the first time in, in, with my company, Greener World Media, the first night, back to your point about investors, that I truly had a sleepless night was the first time that one of my friends said yes to being an investor. Mm, bad news. That was, that was a bad night. Locked you so in I, there, I, didn't that, it? That, yeah. That, Got uh, you there. That hit home for me. But what keeps you up at night? Uh, you know, right now, I mean, the... I have a big giant clock on my wall that counts down the number of seconds left in the Bush presidency. I can tell you to the second if you want to know. I've been awake a lot for seven years. Um, no, seriously, you know, this, I talked about it earlier, uh, the special interest, the, 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 the perniciousness of special interest is that it's a perpetuation of the status quo even when the status quo is wrong. 
and, and the status quo is wrong. And, and they're not to be faulted. You know, they grew up in a world, we grew up in a world where externalities were really that. We weren't, you know, oil was cheap. We didn't know what pollution, the cost of pollution. We didn't know about climate change. A, an entire generation of wastewater engineers were trained that the solution to pollution is dilution. You know, send it to this place called Away. It was never questioned. What keeps me awake at night is will we, and again, I have my three kids, you know, is will, what will their worlds be like and will they ever be able to forgive us? And more, their grand, my grandchildren, uh, if I'm lucky enough to have them, you know, are they going to wonder what the hell we were doing back there or are they going to be able to say, wow, there was a little group who turned it around? And, um, you know, I, I, th- I think... Uh, y- you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs in the organic world who are my heroes are, are not, they are children of the 60s. They were not driven by money. I'm not driven by money. But it turns out that making a lot of money not only gives you power, but makes you much more of a role model than the alternative. Um, in the investment world, in the energy world, the people who come to see me now, the presidential candidates who stop by, take out our trash. You know, we're in New Hampshire, right? We get to see them all. The most progressive uh, business in New Hampshire, you'd think that a few Dems would actually, I think they all spend the night at least one or two I, nights I think at your so. house. Well, yeah. I mean, but, but we do get to meet them all. But, but the point is, I have a seat at the table now. And with Danan, I'm sitting at the table with a $20 billion company who, by the way, is doing some pretty incredible things on in sustainability and influencing others. And my view about Danan is if they go... <clears throat> organic or sustainable or whatever, then Nestle and all the others are going to have to follow. So what keeps me awake is, you know, the question, can we, can we expedite evolution? Can we get there fast enough? So, Gary, you, you, you clearly do have a seat at the table, and it's a table that you helped build, which is the table of, of progressive thinking, progressive food, progressive eating, and, and progressive business. And, and uh, I just want to, want to close by, by thanking you for, for the inspiration that you've given so many of us and so many people uh, I know in the world who have, who have been watching and participating and enjoying what you've been doing. So uh, we've run out of time well before we've run out of questions, but I think some of these folks would like to talk to you afterwards. By the way, Gary will be signing copies of, of, of this book in the lobby in a few minutes. So uh, thank you very much, and I'd like to, you to join me in thanking Gary Hirschberg. Thank you. You've been listening to Gary Hirschberg, founder and CEO of Stonyfield Farm, in conversation with Joel McCower, executive editor of GreenBiz.com. I'm Kerry Curtis, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, observing more than a century of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.